Christmas season is a time of rejoicing. And I pray that this morning each of our hearts would experience the rejoicing that Scripture tells us that we can experience at a time like this. There's many reasons why we can rejoice at Christmas. Uh, I'm just looking around this uh, morning at some of the faces. I see some new faces. I know some of you are family members of members in our church, and you're visiting your family from out of town, and you're visiting them this morning, and you're rejoicing at the joy of, of seeing uh, loved ones uh, and spending time with them. I know we also rejoice expecting to open some gifts tomorrow morning, expecting to receive some sweet presents. And, and sometimes the joy, of, of the joy is not only just opening the presents, it's also the joy of giving presents, right? There's a joy in giving. Uh, and and in Chris, at Christmas season, this, even this joy of giving is a reflection of, of what God has given to us. He has sent us a gift. And His gift is, is wrapped not in flashy packages. His gift is wrapped in swaddling clothes laid in a manger. There's many reasons to rejoice at Christmas. But one in particular is also, it's a joy not simply of, of seeing loved ones, not simply of receiving gifts. It's the joy of captives hearing that their release has come. The song we have just sung, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, says, And ransom captive Israel. And the, the, the chorus of the, of the song says, Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. In the song that we have just sung, the, the reason why Israel is called to rejoice is because their Savior, the one sent to rescue them, is promised to come and is to come. And by the time we are now in this point of history, we look back and say, He has come. He has come in His first coming, and He will come again in His second coming. Well, this morning, I would like for us to talk about the birth of Jesus and the reason why he is a cause, a reason to rejoice. This morning, I invite you to open God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. And we'll be reading the entire chapter, Matthew, chapter 1. If you are here with us this morning and you did not bring a Bible with you, we encourage you to grab a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. And you may find this passage on page number 807 in the Pew Bibles. This morning... We will begin this gospel about the birth of Jesus by starting with the genealogy of Jesus. Here's, uh, here's how Matthew begins talking about the story of the birth of Jesus. Here's God's word for us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David 
the king. And David was a father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was a father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a man, a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, asking God to bless our hearts through the preaching of God's word. Our God and Father, you have revealed to us your word, but you have done more than that. You have sent us your Son. As we hear about his birth, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us understand the meaning of his birth? Would you help us understand the reason why we can rejoice at his birth? Speak to our hearts, we pray. Open the eyes of the blind. Bring life to those who are dead in sin. And encourage those who need the encouragement of Christ. We pray this for the glory of your Son, Jesus, and through the power and the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit. In his name we pray. Amen. 
well at Christmas time, we want to meditate upon the meaning of the birth of Jesus. Uh, all, all news of birth, of, of human birth, brings joy to those who hear it. But there's a special reason why the birth of Jesus uh, brings extra joy, extra reasons for joy. The way the Gospel of Matthew chooses to begin the story of announcing the birth of Jesus is very strange and very awkward to modern eyes. Uh, to our modern ears, uh, it's beginning, the way Matthew begins this gospel is counterproductive. Today, we are used to hear uh, a story or a message begin with a good, captivating story, with a good attention-grabbing illustration to draw us in to what the story is about. But if we look at how Matthew begins his book, we are lost right from the very beginning. He starts off with a long list of names, and these names are hard to pronounce. Most likely, you will tell me at the end of the service how good of a job I've done at pronouncing those names. Why? Because they're so difficult. He starts off with this list of long, hard names, and you wonder, surely, surely there must be a better way to introduce the story of Jesus than by giving a book of genealogies. If you're like me, your natural tendency when you hit a pa a passages of names like this is to run quickly through them. And to go into skim reading mode and just browse through and look to the end of the list and hope you find the end of the list so that you can resume your normal reading pattern, right? But then we also know and we believe that all Scripture is written not only by men, but all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And not only is it inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Why is it then that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to begin the story, the greatest story to be told, the greatest birth to be told? Why is Matthew beginning the story by starting off what, what, with what might appear to us as an attention-killer introduction. A book of genealogies might be an attention-killer today for modern years. But in ancient times, genealogies were credential-establishing passages. In ancient times, important people, in ancient times, important people were introduced through genealogies. The first two ones in the whole Bible are Noah and Abraham. In the Bible, we see genealogies mentioned at important points of the life of God's people. In ancient times, genealogies demonstrated credentials for power. They also indicated one's character and profile. So even though genealogies may not be attention-grabbing tools for us today, they were used in ancient times to establish credentials. But well, credentials for what? 
What is Matthew trying to establish through this genealogy of, about the life of Jesus? Well, let's look at three points that we will see this morning in this passage about what Matthew is trying to establish from the very beginning. Three points, the early credentials, I'm sorry, the earthly credentials for a royal status. The earthly credentials for a royal status. Point two, the explanation of this baby's conception. And point three, the reason why this baby's name is Jesus. As Matthew tries to help us understand the importance of this birth, the significance of why this birth is worthy of our attention, worthy of our examination, worthy of our worship. Let's consider the earthly credentials for a royal status, the explanation for this baby's conception, and the reason why this baby's name is Jesus. Let's look at these three things as we consider the significance of the birth of Jesus. The earthly credentials for a royal status. Notice how verse 1 begins this passage. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To a Jewish person in ancient times, genealogies were important also for showing the purity of of lineage. For instance, um, in the Old Testament, when the exiles returned from their captivity in Babylon, any priest who wanted to be a priest had to show the records of his family lineage in order to qualify to be a priest. We see this in the book of Ezra. Whoever was not able to produce such records was not eligible to be a priest in Israel. Well, in this context, Matthew starts off with a genealogy. He's not trying to kill our attention, but rather to prove the reason why we should pay attention to the story of Jesus. He has all the earthly credentials to fulfill the office that he is born for. What, what is that office? It is interesting that the first description of Jesus is son of David. This description is also used of Joseph in, chapter, in verse 20, pointing out the connection that David was um, the, the very first description of, of how Jesus is referenced, son of, not Joseph, son of David. David is significant in this genealogy. David alone is described as David the king. Did you notice that? In this list of names, when you go through the names, only of David is it said David the king. Well, if we pay attention to some of these names, about a third of these names were also kings. Why is it that only David is mentioned? David the king. Because he was an iconic figure in the history of Israel. And God promised to send another, another king that would reign over the throne of, of David. David is mentioned as, the, as this picture of, of God's reign over his people through the king that he will send. If we keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, one of the common descriptions of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus, Jesus is described as son of David. The reason for this often used description is to show that Jesus meets the qualifications to the throne. He has all the earthly qualifications to be a king. In chapter 2, the story of the Magi clearly highlights the theme of Jesus as the king. 
But before Matthew can explicitly describe Jesus as king, he first sets the credentials that Jesus meets the earthly qualifications. The genealogy sets the record straight. Jesus is also identified as son of Abraham. This title is, is not used often of Jesus. All the Jews considered themselves to be sons of Abraham. Yet here, identifying Jesus as son of Abraham not only identifies him as a genuine Jew, but it also brings to remembrance what God promised Abraham. The blessing God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. It was a blessing not only for the people of Israel, not only for the Jews, but it was a blessing for all the nations of the earth. In Genesis 12, 13, uh, verse 3, God says to Abraham, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Describing Jesus as son of Abraham not only connects Jesus' earthly family record to go all the way back to Abraham, but this connection to Abraham anticipates what Jesus says to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, in the, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The promise God gave Abraham was going to affect all the nations. And Jesus was going to begin this worldwide mission. That's why, dear friends, at Christmas, we care deeply not only about what happens with the gospel in our own city or in our own country, but what happens with the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why in December, uh, in particular, we collect a special missions offering that supports missionaries who take the gospel to the ends of the of the earth, and we encourage one another to be generous in supporting the work of missions to the ends of the earth. Why? Because when we talk about the birth of Jesus, we talk about a worldwide mission that Jesus came to establish. By describing Jesus as the son of Abraham, Matthew identifies Jesus not simply as a Jew, but anticipates the worldwide blessing that God had promised to Abraham. Friends, this blessing worldwide is ours. We are part of that list of the nations who are to be blessed through Abraham's seed. Oh, friends, this blessing comes to us through Jesus. In this genealogy, Jesus is also identified not only as the son of David, not only as the son of Abraham, he's also identified as the Christ. Notice how Jesus is described both at the very beginning, verse 1, Jesus Christ, but also at the very end of the genealogy, of whom, verse 17, of whom Jesus, I'm sorry, verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, we are today so used to identify Jesus as Jesus Christ, and we think and use the name Christ as a name for Jesus. But at this time, when Matthew writes his gospel, the name Christ was not a name, it was a title was a role. And it meant the anointed one, the Messiah. When King Herod assembled the chief priests because he heard from the Magi that, that the king of Israel had been born, King Herod inquired not where Jesus was to be born, but he inquired where the Christ was to be born. And the answer he received in, in chapter 2, we, if we look ahead in chapter 2, verse 6, is that in Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Do you see how this prophecy describes the Christ? The title, the Christ, is defined here as a promised ruler who would shepherd God's people. Matthew closes the genealogy of Jesus by pointing out that Jesus is the one called the Christ, the Messiah, the promised ruler who would come to shepherd God's people. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus. This awkward way, this attention-killer introduction to set the stage and to clarify and to address the objection whether or not Jesus is the legitimate king of God's people. For the Jewish people, nobody could claim this office. Nobody could claim the, the role of being king over them without having the right historical lineage confirmed. Interestingly, one of the commentators points out a contrast with King Herod and what King Herod did about his uh, lineage records. As a matter of fact, one commentator says, Herod the Great was so embarrassed that as half Jew, half, half Edomite, his name was not in the official genealogies that he ordered their destruction so that nobody could claim a purer pedigree than his own. Far from seeing this as a bit of dull antiquarianism, therefore, the first readers of the Gospel of Matthew would be fascinated that Jesus could trace his genealogy back to Abraham. Friends, we may not be convinced that Jesus has the qualifications to be the expected king by merely looking at the genealogy. Looking at a genealogy may not be the way we might be convinced that Jesus is the king. I wonder, though, what would it take us today to convince us that Jesus is a legitimate king? Do you consider him to be a legitimate king over your life? Do you recognize that Jesus is not like Santa Claus, a figure of imagination that simply brings us goodies? No, Jesus was born to be king. One of the uh, newly found carols that I've discovered a few years ago uh, that I cherish and I've loved to, uh, I've grown to love uh, dearly, is a carol called, and we will sing it tonight, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent, or Keep Silence. Christ, and one of the lines in in that carol says, Christ our God to earth descendeth, our full homage demand. The reason why Christ can demand worship, can demand homage is because he is the legitimate king. Well, you may say, well, I'm, I'm not a Jew. I, am, I'm, I don't need to have Jesus as king of my life. Um, this genealogy stuff just shows that he was the legitimate king over God's people. Well, the genealogy is the introduction of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. As the story unfolds, we learn more reasons why Jesus is rightly the king. And he's king not only over the people of Israel, he's king. His credentials go beyond the earthly genealogy. Let's look at the second reason why we see Jesus as a king. The explanation for this baby's conception. 
the explanation for this baby's conception shows another reason why we should consider Jesus as king. Humanly speaking, Mary's pregnancy was a scandalous situation. Matthew points out the timing of the conception of this baby in Mary's womb. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament law, an engaged couple was not yet married, but were legally married. For Mary to be betrothed to Joseph meant that they were legally married without being allowed to consummate their marriage until their marriage vows took place. Matthew makes it very clear that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Yet Joseph had a hard time with this news. Humanly speaking, from his perspective, he could no longer continue in this engagement. So he planned to divorce her. He planned to divorce Mary quietly. Look at verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, notice how Joseph is described here. Her husband, even though they were just betrothed, just engaged. Because marriage uh, it was, was very differently viewed then as we, or engagement was very differently viewed then than it is now. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But God intervenes in Joseph's troubled mind and explained to him the source of the conception of this baby in Mary's womb. How could a baby conceive, be conceived in Mary's womb? God assured Joseph that the conception was not from a human father. The conception was from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. But as he, was consider, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, scientifically, this may make no sense. There's a reason why, for many non-Christians, the virgin birth of Christ is a total stumbling block. It is hard, impossible for them to believe. And I understand. The reason why it's hard to believe is because it's hard to believe in any miraculous works of God. God says that he created the world out of nothing. That he created the world by speaking it into existence. That this world came into existence by the word of God. Surely there they might be some explanations how we may, we may try to understand how that came about. There might be some scientific processes that we might sort of try to figure out. But even those scientific processes will still leave us with a gap. Something Somewhere there's going to be a gap, a theory we must believe in and sort of jump through darkness to, to believe that this world came into existence by a certain way. Well, the Bible says that this world came into existence by the Word of God. Well, God doesn't give us the scientific explanation of how that took place, but we believe that God can do things that our limited mind cannot comprehend or explain. That's why He's God. That's why he's, he's more than what we can understand. Just to be sure that the story of the virgin birth is not merely an invention that Matthew came up with. In verse 22, Matthew explains that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Friends, it's amazing that when Matthew 
I'm sorry, when the angel uh, and Matthew tried to convince Joseph and tried to convince us of the reliability, of the truthfulness of the virgin birth, Matthew points out not simply to what happens in Mary's womb, but Matthew points this out and backs up the argument with evidence from Scripture. The Word of God is evidence that the virgin birth is true. In other words, Matthew brings evidence from Scripture from the Old Testament that God has foretold the virgin conception 700 years prior to it happening. In other words, the virgin birth was, was planned by God long ago before it took place. And God revealed it much earlier. Matthew appeals to Scripture as evidence that this virgin birth idea is not a brand new idea only for the New Testament. The Old Testament speaks about it. God revealed it long ago. Matthew's interested not only to tell us that the virgin birth was foretold by God in the Old Testament, but he also tells us another meaning of the name given in Isaiah. The name given in Isaiah was Emmanuel. Matthew interprets his Hebrew, this Hebrew name and says, which means God is with us. In Isaiah's time, the sign that God gave to King Ahaz was a sign to assure him that God was with his people, ready to save them, ready to save them from their enemies. They were real enemies, real threats. Ahaz was in trouble, and yet Ahaz chose not to believe the word of God. And God gave Ahaz a sign, even though Ahaz did not want it. Ahaz, refu Ahaz refused to believe in God's rescue plan in the Old Testament, even if that sign was given in the book of Isaiah. No one, however, no one expected the incarnation. No one expected that actually there would be an incarnate Son of God born of a virgin. In the book of Isaiah, the word for virgin could just as well be interpreted as the young woman. And the Jewish people expected that God would send a, a special king, an anointed Messiah, who would be God's anointed king through the Holy Spirit. But they still expected a, a rather human, natural birth. The shocking news is to find out that the most literal translation, even in the book of Isaiah, was actually the one intended by the Lord. And when God brought the fulfillment of this promise, it was brought in the fulfillment of the most literal interpretation, a literal virgin. And the conception was truly a virgin conception. God brings all this about to show that to God, nothing is impossible. That the Word of God can be literally taken to mean what God says. And then when, when, when Matthew interprets the meaning of the name, he says in, in Isaiah it meant God is with us. Well, the Jews knew that God would be with them in various ways, through various deliverances. God would, would bring up prophets. God would raise up deliverers for them to, to bring them back from slavery, bring them back into God's land. All these were signs that God was with them. But in the virgin conception, there was a, a deeper level of the meaning of God with us. This is not just God's spirit is us because God sends us a, a, a human deliverer. Oh no, God is with us in the sense that God becomes incarnate. That God takes upon himself human flesh and now begins to dwell with us. That's why, dear friends, even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says 
in the book of Colossians 1.19, For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The reason why we must pay attention to this King, the reason why we must pay attention to His birth, is not only because His earthly credentials are established that He is King, but because of His divine nature. He is not merely an earthly king. He is a divine king. The explanation of his birth proves that he was sent literally from God. He is truly human, but he is also truly God. The third point that Matthew wants to bring out to us this morning is the reasons why this baby's name is Jesus. We have looked at his earthly credentials We have looked at the explanation of his wondrous and miraculous birth. Thirdly, Matthew wants to tell us the reasons why this baby's name is Jesus. You know, when when a baby is born today, when a couple finds out that they're expecting, and when they start telling the news to others, to family members, that they're expecting, One of the questions that is oftentimes asked pretty early on, have you chosen a name yet? Right. And some people choose a name before they're even pregnant. Other people may choose a name before they go to the hospital. You know, people vary in the way they think about the choosing of a name and the importance of choosing that name. Well, in the story of the birth of Jesus... The way Jesus is called is very important. And there is a story behind choosing the name Jesus. In describing the beginnings of of Jesus, Matthew not only tells us the long earthly lineage into which Jesus was born, but Matthew tells us the meaning of his name. Why was he called Jesus? Look at verse 21. The angel says this to, to Joseph about Mary. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the angel asked Joseph to name the baby. In ancient times, this was a sign of adoption, so that even though it's clear that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus, God asked Joseph to name the baby. And the name this baby was to have, God chose. And Joseph gave. The angel not only informs Joseph of the name that God chose for this baby in Mary's womb, but the angel tells Joseph why he should call the baby Jesus. Look again at verse 21. The significance of this name reveals why he was born. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. The meaning of the name Jesus is that he will save people, his people, from their sins. Up to now, we have seen that Matthew presented Jesus as a royal figure, as a son of David, who was expected to come and conquer the enemies and rescue God's people. To present Jesus as a savior, to present Jesus as a rescuer, was not a shocking news. After all, this is what David was all about. David was known for being a warrior who subdued Israel's enemies and brought peace in the land. Jesus was the fitting king who would fit David's shoes to be a deliverer and a rescuer. There's nothing 
unusual about that part. What is shocking and unusual, however, is to find out what exactly Jesus will save his people from. He will save his people from their sins. No one in the Old Testament was ever able to accomplish this kind of rescue from sins. Friends, this brief description of the meaning of the name of Jesus is like a dynamite because it speaks volumes about what sin is. Think about, for a moment, think about what this description says, not about Jesus, but about sin. What does this description of Jesus say about sin itself? Sin is described in the Bible as rebellion against God. Sin is described in, in the Bible as making us guilty before God. Sin is not merely actions of rebellion, but a state of rebellion, a nature corrupted and inclined towards rebellion against our Creator. Sin is, is that inclined nature corrupted to ignore God, in, in, inclined to keep God away from our lives. Jesus was born not simply to give us forgiveness of sins, Jesus was born to save us from sins. And there's a big difference. To say that Jesus was only born or was born only to forgive us of our sins means that sin is simply a matter of guilt before God. Now, that's true. And we need that guilt to be removed. But we need not merely forgiveness of sins. We need to be saved from our sins. We need to be rescued out of our sins. This means, this language reveals that sin is not merely a guilt status before God, but sin is a bondage from which we must be rescued. Jesus came not simply to make payment for the penalty of our sin, although that is true. But Jesus came also to break the bondage of our sin so that we may be freed from it. People often ask God to take them out of a particular messy situation. At the time of Jesus' birth, the people of God were serving under the Roman regime. They were looking for a Savior who would rescue them, free them out of, their, out of, the, out of the bondage to their enemies. And here the angel announces to Joseph that Mary is... is is pregnant and the baby in her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that the father of this baby is not Joseph but God and God calls his name Jesus because he will be a savior but a savior from a far greater enemy than the Roman Empire as a matter of fact he will not save them from the Romans as a matter of fact he will be crucified at the hands of the Romans. He will save his people, but not from the earthly bondage, not from the human mess. He will save his people from their sins. Friends, I wonder if this morning you find this news to be good news. Or would you rather find it like those Christmas gifts that you get, anticipating to get something sweet, but then being disappointed? and then taking it back. 
the next day. This is not what you expected. There's some people today who are going to treat Jesus with these earthly hopes and expectations. And Jesus, for some, is going to be the recipe for, for a better life, for a more happy ending, for a more comfortable existence, for more happy relationships, for happy marriages, for, for more fulfillment in life. Have your best life now. Oh, friends, if you have your best life now, you're going to hell. Because if this is your best life now, then what happens after death is not going to be better. Friends, do you realize that Jesus came to save us, to rescue us, not from our messy situation here on this earth, not from messy relationships. Christians still experience messy marriages. Christians still experience messy relationships. Christians still experience messy situations in this life. But Jesus was born to save us and save his people from their sins. Is there sin in your life? Are there sins that you have been committing? Jesus was born to save God's people from their sins. This morning, if you are not a part of God's people, you can become part of God's people. You can become part of what God came to save. In the Gospel of John, we are told that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You can, be part, you can become part of the people of God by repenting of your sin and trusting that Jesus came to save anyone who would repent of, Jesus, of their sins and trust in Christ. Friend, if you would like to know more about what this means, I would encourage you to talk to the person next to you. Or if you have lunch with them, ask them over lunch, what does it mean to become a Christian? But I want to make sure you understand, before you leave the service, to understand this great news. The very name Jesus means that God sent this baby to be born, to live a perfect life without any rebellion, without any sin whatsoever. And yet he was crucified in order that he would take upon himself the penalty of our sin and through his death to break the power of sin and the bondage that holds the human race. Three days later, God raised him from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, proving that, he, that Jesus overcame sin and death. And now God grants salvation to all those who would repent of their sin and trust in Jesus to be saved. Friends, let me ask you, have you been saved from your sin? We make a big deal about the birth of Jesus. We celebrate his birth. But he, was, he was born with this mission to save God's people from their sins. And the Bible says that anyone, anyone, who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Not everyone will be saved, but anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The meaning of the name of Jesus, oh dear friends, tells us why we as Christians make a big deal about his birth, because of what Jesus was sent for. The meaning of the name of Jesus has significance not only for those who are not yet Christians. The meaning of the name of Jesus has significance for us who have become Christians already. 
Dear beloved, think how often you struggle with sin, with sin patterns, with temptations. Think how often you fight against various sin patterns, whether they are the desires of the flesh, sexual temptations, pornography, or relational sins such as anger, gossip, critical spirit, or other personal sins such as bitterness, covetousness, laziness, self-pity, self-centeredness, drunkenness, or other forms of addiction. Whatever sin patterns we fight against, when you feel discouraged in your battle against sin, when you feel like sin is is gaining more traction over your life than, than you would like it to be, remember this great news that God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin so that he, Jesus, would send would, would save his people from their sins. Because he will save his people from their sins, we as Christians have great hope in the battle against sin in our lives. We gain traction in fighting against sin, not because of our strength, not just because of our discipline, not because of how zealous we are to fight against sin, our sinful patterns. We fight and gain traction against sin in our lives the more we look to Jesus, the more we get closer to Him as we fight against the old sinful habits, as we fight against the old sinful nature. Remember this great news. The reason we can claim victory over sin in our lives is not because of our strength or discipline, but because of Jesus. Look to Him as you fight off sin. Get closer to Him in order to fight off your sin. Jesus is the one who rescues us from our daily battles with sin. And friends, this is great news. This is a great news why we rejoice at Christmas. Because in the birth of Jesus, God sends us the one who can deal with our sins. We are freed from it. Now, that doesn't mean that we will no longer experience the, the presence of sin in our lives. That doesn't mean that we will no longer feel the, the tug of sin in our lives. Our old sinful nature still dwells in us. And until the Lord comes in His second coming, the presence of sin will still be among us, inside of us. But the source for battling it, the source for battling sin, dear friends, has been revealed. And not only has it been revealed, has been given to us, and He dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. There's something back in the, in the genealogy that, that I intentionally left out that I want to bring back now that anticipates this mission of Jesus coming to, to the rescue of sinners. He came to rescue sinners out of their sin. The genealogy includes not only great names like Abraham and David, but it also includes four names of women. And it also includes the Babylonian captivity. The listing of names of women was less common in ancient genealogies, but they were still there once in a while. What is shocking, however, is what particular women Matthew chooses to, to identify. The particular women were not the women of, that the Jews were very proud of, but quite the opposite. Tamar was an adulteress, and Judah was involved in that adultery with Tamar. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho. Bathsheba is not even mentioned by name. She's just called 
Uriah's wife because David committed adultery with her. Ruth, she was a Moabite. Moabites were not allowed in the temple of the Lord, even after the 10th generation. Matthew could have easily skipped on mentioning these names. They are not important in the sense of showing off who, who fathered these generations. There is no need to mention these women. Yet Matthew chooses to include these women for a few reasons. To show perhaps that the lineage of Jesus already showed evidence of God's grace to reach out to sinners who totally blew it, who totally did not deserve God's grace. Some of these women were also not part of God's people at first. They were not part of, of the people of, of Israel. And yet God extended His grace even in the Old Testament to some of the Gentiles in anticipation of what God will do to all the nations of the earth through Jesus. In each of these women's lives, there was an element of, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Something went wrong in these women's lives, in each and every one of them. And of course it did. The same can be told about the deportation to Babylon. Something went utterly, law, utterly wrong, not in the, just the history of one woman here and there. Something went utterly wrong in the whole nation of Israel. It was not supposed to be that way. God gave Abraham a great promise. Then God gave his people a great king. And yet the nation of Israel blew it up big time. Yet all these, the four women and the, the, the exile to Babylon, is incorporated in this genealogy of Jesus. The shameful experiences of the past are not put under the rug. They are brought in in one of the most credential establishing records for why Jesus is important. It's like, I'm going to put this evidence in the county record to be sure that it is in, recorded in the most official document so that it will never be missed. Shame, failure, disobedience, sin, rebellion. That is what is in, recorded in the public record of the birth of Jesus. But mentioning these names, mentioning the Babylonian exile, is not about bringing back the shame. Even though God's, God had made the promise to Abraham and to David, the people of God chose a path of disobedience. The point here, however, is not to shame them. The earthly genealogy of Jesus presents these elements in order to tell us that it's okay to bring our shame to Jesus. He is not ashamed of our past. And our sins are not too big of a problem for God to redeem us out of. Every one of those women were stories of how God rescued what humanly seemed impossible. How God restored people who did not deserve it at all. Who had no earthly reasons to be given grace. And yet God did it in their lives. And not only that, but God incorporated their, their stories in the public genealogy of Jesus 
to say from the very beginning, this is what Jesus is about. Bring your past to him. Don't try to hide it off. Don't try to put it, pretend like it's not there. God is not ashamed of our past. He's not going to leave us there. He's going to transform us. Nothing is too weak. Nothing is too, too, short, too, too, too fragile for God to rebuild up. The earthly genealogy of Jesus and the bringing of these names shows that God is not ashamed to bring our shame into the story of the rescue that God wants to bring to us. He's not, he's not ashamed to recognize the scandalous experiences of the past, the past sins in the genealogy of Jesus. It is safe to bring up the past, the dark history, because Jesus was sent to save us, to rescue us from that. Oh, if we would understand the meaning of the birth of Jesus, the significance of the birth of Jesus. Oh, my friend, if, if you find yourself this morning that your life is more like the, the life of, of these four women or more like the life of the, of the Babylonian exile, exile out of, out of the land that you were promised, oh, friends, bring that to Jesus. Come with that to Jesus. He is able to rescue you from your sin. Let's pray. Almighty God, indeed you are a God able to save because you have provided, you have sent a Savior like no other. Yes, he was like Abraham. Yes, he was like David. But he was so much more than Abraham. He was so much more than David. He accomplished what Abraham could have not. He accomplished what David was not able to accomplish. He accomplished what none of us can accomplish of our own. Dear God, would you, would you have Jesus rescue people from their sins even today? And help us to put our trust in him entirely so that indeed through Christ we can be rescued from the bondage of our sin. So that we can live the life that you have promised us. Not because of what we can do for ourselves, but what, what, because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that we would treasure Christ, that we will rejoice in his birth because of the mission that you have given to him. We thank you that his mission does not fail and will not fail. It is in the name of Christ that we pray for his glory and honor.